0: This is Kathy Altamirano from San Diego, California, and you are listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. You know there is a little bit more to making a podcast than just talking into a mic and hitting publish. You need more than that. And I'm talking about a reliable hosting service so your time can be spent working on your show. You also want accurate download numbers, you want to see the audience that you're reaching and you're going to want a web page that is simple and easy to work with. That's why I choose Blueberry. With its simple media hosting and fully integrated WordPress website, it can't get any easier. So if you host a show or if you're thinking about starting one, visit www.orbitaljigsaw.com/dream to give Blueberry a try for a month for free. Blueberry support team will be right there every step of the way to help you migrate over so you won't lose any of your subscribers in the process. And if you're brand new to this, they can get your new show up and running. And with a month for free to try it out using promo code DREAM, what have you got to lose? There are a number of ways that you can support California Dreaming. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can spread the word about the show, you can recommend us in podcasts and true crime fan groups, you can leave the show a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, or whichever platform you listen to the show on. And if you would like to go a little above and beyond, you can also support the show on our Patreon. For as little as a dollar a month, you can gain access to one exclusive episode per month, and there are currently more than two dozen episodes that you can binge. So it's a pretty good deal for just a dollar. This week, because I haven't gotten to the Patreon thank yous since episode 131, I'm going to give a handful in this episode and a handful in the next until I can catch up. And I'm also going to catch up soon on thank you cards. So this week, I'd like to thank Becca E., Molly P., Fanny G., Josephine, Evelyn L., Brandy K., Gina M., Suzanne F., Denise M., Lori B., Jennifer, Joy W., Jeffrey W., Ellen C., and Jenna K. for joining Patreon. And I'd like to thank Jerry S., Anna W., Alyssa, and Monique A. for raising their pledge to the next tier. And if making a monthly donation isn't your thing, you can make a one-time contribution to the show through our PayPal using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. Every little bit helps in keeping us going and keeping us free of ads. So thank you. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to give you an update about what's going on with the show. I'm attempting to officially get back on track with our usual weekly episodes now that I'm about 99% settled into the new place here in Henderson, Nevada. The whole thing kind of took an emotional toll on my family and me in the weeks leading up to the move. The move itself took a physical toll. But what I am thankful for is we barely, just barely, snuck the move in before the various cities, counties, and states began ordering mandatory closures of non-essential businesses as a result of the coronavirus outbreak. I got here on Monday, the 9th of March, and within 10 days, everything was closed down except for the places that we needed like grocery stores, gas stations, and restaurants that were able to provide drive-through and takeout services. It's not easy trying to move to a different state and to get your life back in order in the middle of a growing pandemic. But I do feel fortunate that I was able to slip into Nevada before the lockdown really set in. So that being said, I'm doing all right and my family is okay as well. The only one of us working at the moment is my daughter who works at a grocery store. She did stay behind in California to stay close to my mom because somebody had to. And she really didn't want to move to Nevada with me, which I understand. Her whole life, all of her friends, her job, school, everything is there. And that's really been the hardest part since this is the first time that we've lived apart. And I miss her. For the most part, we're all adjusting pretty well. The dogs seem to be doing fine, but you know we're home a lot now, so I think they're pretty happy about that. We're in an upstairs place, and they like being able to look out the windows, off the balcony, and bark at other people and dogs throughout the day, though Fred is not a fan of the staircase. Going down is sort of okay. It's going back up where we have problems, and I start pulling on him to catch up with the other two dogs. But other than that, all is well, or as well as it can be, with everything going on in the world. The people I do encounter are being a little bit nicer At least to me in general, everyone is seemingly more patient, a little bit more courteous, a little bit more grateful, because this is a thing that is deeply affecting each of us. Aside from the hoarding of household essentials like food and water and hand sanitizers, which I don't really quite understand, because if everything is being hoarded, then others won't be able to have the essentials to stay healthy and at home themselves. It was more than two weeks before I was actually able to buy a package of toilet paper here in Nevada. I was borrowing some from my mother-in-law. But anyway, I want to thank you all for staying engaged with me on social media in our Facebook group on Twitter and on Instagram. I haven't been able to comment or post all that much, but I appreciate all of you coming there and sharing and posting and commenting and liking everything. As for the last couple weeks in terms of the show. I was able to create two new exclusive Patreon bonuses for those of you who support the show at every tier level. I've always promised from the very beginning that no matter what level you join, whether it's the $1 tier or the $20 tier, you would always have access to one full length episode each month to the best of my ability. I am aware that there are shows that are unable to commit to putting an entire episode behind a paywall and offering access for a dollar. I've been told that I sell myself short, that I give away enough free content on the regular feed, et cetera, et cetera. But my reasoning has always been that as a podcast fan and listener, first and foremost, I know that it's hard to pick and choose which creators that you want to support. If you love 25 different podcasts, you're probably not going to be able to give $5 to every single show. So rather than deciding which shows that you want to support, on patreon by picking a handful to donate to you decide to make a donation to as many as you can even if that means you opt in at the show's opening tier and for California dreaming it's one dollar sometimes listeners message me and say that they wish that they could do more and my response has always been that every single click anyone ever makes to support the production is appreciated and i really mean it anyone who takes the time to go through the trouble of signing up on patreon and is willing to contribute on any tier I'm grateful for. Because the bottom line is, nobody has to give this show anything. You will always get free episodes each week, usually. So the only way that I can give back to those who decide to send a little monetary support our way is to give access to an exclusive bonus to all of you, not just some of you. And I have tried to provide a second bonus on a monthly basis, though I'm not always able to. I try. To the ones who are supporters on the slightly higher tier levels of support as a gesture of my appreciation for giving a little bit extra. But for the month of March, the two Patreon bonuses were for everyone who supports the show at all levels, and it's the only thing that I could think of doing for you guys during these tough times that we're experiencing in the world with this coronavirus. Many of us are at home, we're isolated, we're out of work. And if this little show is able to get your mind off of things for just a little while, then my job is done. So if you are a patron, there are two new episodes for the month of March, and all together they add up to about four hours of content for your listening pleasure. But now before the month of March is out, I need to give back to all of you, not just to patrons of the show. I appreciate your patience and understanding while I was dealing with this transition. Before I moved, I left you with the six-part series on the deaths of Andrew Bagby and Zachary Turner, and that was quite emotionally draining. I knew I wasn't going to be able to upload any episodes for a while, so I wanted to give you enough content to hold you over for a little bit while I got settled in. And if you happen to be a patron, and if you've had a chance to listen to the most recent episodes, I did cover a case here out of Nevada, the 2011 death of Michaela Costanzo in the small town of West Wendover, Nevada, which is located in the northern part of the state close to the western border of Utah. I mentioned in that episode that there was only one other time that I had heard of West Wendover, and it was in the case that I'm going to talk to you about here today. In this 140th episode of California Dreaming, the disappearance of of Stephen Kocher. On the morning of December 13th, 2009, 30-year-old Steven Kocher pulled his 2003 Chevy Cavalier into a cul-de-sac located on the 2600 block of Savannah Springs Avenue. This is a dedicated retirement community in the Anthem Area Housing Development of Henderson, Nevada. As I sit and record this, I am just a few miles from that location. And I do intend to try and drive over there sometime after this episode goes live just to see the street and the dead end for myself. Stephen's vehicle was captured on a home surveillance camera pulling into that cul-de-sac at 11.54 a.m., He parked it at the end of the street, and six minutes later, at exactly noon, a person, believed to be Stephen, is captured by that same video surveillance camera, walking by, back in the opposite direction from which he drove, and parked. The figure in the images appeared to be wearing a light-colored pair of slacks and a white shirt, but he also appeared to be carrying a folder or a portfolio in his hand. A second video camera trained on the driveway of another home on Evening Light Street. And in this one, the same figure can be seen continuing to walk to the north and crossing the street until he goes out of the view of cameras. This person's walk has said to have looked pretty deliberate, like he had a destination, a place that he was going, a thing that he had to do, an appointment to keep. But why he left his car where he did and where he walked to to this day remains a mystery so what happened to Stephen kocher and are the answers hidden somewhere in the timeline of the days leading up to the last time he was ever seen we all know the story at least most of us do anyway but for those who don't i will provide a synopsis of the events leading up to it But what I really want to try to delve into is the details of the timeline of Stephen's final days and the few days following the last time that he was seen on that surveillance video. So we will start with a little bit of a background on the case. Stephen Kocher was born on November 1st 1979 in Amarillo, Texas, and he was the second oldest of the five children to Rolf and Deanne Kocher. Stephen was a Boy Scout, eventually making Eagle Scout. He graduated from Amarillo High School in the class of 1998, and from there, he attended what was then called Rick's College. Today, it's Brigham Young University, located in Idaho. Later on, he transferred to the University of Utah, where he graduated with his bachelor's in communications. As a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or LDS, or we may just be referring to this as the Mormon religion, Stephen, along with his family, were very devout. And he would go on to complete his missionary work in Brazil, where he became fluent in Portuguese. After graduating from college, Stephen was an intern at the offices of the governor of Utah, which lasted for about nine months. About a year and a half later, and this would put Stephen at about 23 to 24 years old at the time, he got a job at the Davis County Clipper, which is a a twice-a-month newspaper publication based in the city of Bountiful, Utah. This is where Stephen's father worked as the newspaper's editor. Stephen's role there was that of a stringer, which, in the world of journalism, is a freelance writer, reporter, photographer, or videographer who typically contributes to the publication on a regular basis, but is paid per item that is contributed to be published or broadcasted. Stephen seemed to do well there with The Clipper, and he stayed working there for about a year and a half, and several of the articles that he contributed to were award-winning pieces. By the time Stephen left The Clipper, he was maybe about 26 or 27 years old, the dates are somewhat vague, so I can only give you a ballpark on everything in terms of where Stephen was at in life. So, at first, I was a little bit perplexed by Stephen's decision to leave this job with a clipper because his dad was the editor. He was sure to be able to work his way up through the ranks if he stuck with it. But then, when I think about my own 20s and how I went from job to job to job, I remember feeling like I could always do more or do better than where I was at or that I could find some place that I was more comfortable or happy. And one of the things that I kind of see going on with Stephen through the various decisions and moves that he made from the mid to late 2000s, I feel like he was either searching for something, running away from something or hiding from something. And because I've spoken openly about the challenges that I've had with the dynamics of my own family, I often look there when it comes to something like this. Those of us who have watched the investigation discovery show disappeared, we can see the heartbreak in Stephen's parents as they spoke about him having gone missing. But one of the things that stood out to me is when Rolf Koter discussed having a heated phone conversation with his son about him being behind on his rent, at which point Stephen hung up on him. I'll talk more about this a little bit later on, but I've speculated in past episodes of California Dreaming when I've talked about Stephen that I thought perhaps he struggled with his relationship with his parents, possibly his siblings as well. And I've said repeatedly that sometimes on these shows, families aren't always forthcoming with the not-so-flattering details of the dynamics in the home because it is really hard to pinpoint anything specific with the Coachers. They seem like a good, loving Close knit religious family. But for Stephen, he seemed to have been the one that had some really serious underlying issues that he was keeping to himself. And part of that may have included the need to distance himself from his family. So in 2007, after leaving the Davis County Clipper, Stephen found a job with the Salt Lake Tribune working in digital advertising. And according to his mom, Deanne, she said that Stephen enjoyed the job, but he didn't like working the graveyard shift. So I don't really know what was going on with Stephen at this point, but he probably isn't realizing that the recession is about to hit and he's not going to be able to be so nitpicky about jobs. But then I began to think that maybe Stephen at first thought it would be a good idea to follow in his father's footsteps to get his degree in communications and finding a comfy little job working for a newspaper. However, when Rolf got into the newspaper business and when Stephen got into it, times were very, very different and the shift to digital was taking over and with it likely a great deal of competition in the field. Nowadays, with social media, online publications, everything having gone digital, Stephen was probably not going to be able to get to working for a newspaper in the same capacity as his dad to someday become editor-in-chief. And couple that with a somewhat complicated and strange relationship that I suspect that Stephen had with his dad, the whole plan could have been doomed from the start. Rolf also could have set the bar very, very high. He was probably quite accomplished and expected much of the same from Stephen. But what Rolf Kocher may not have quite had his finger on was the changing times. What do I mean by that? Well, my mom is exactly like that, as a matter of fact. She thinks you can just walk into any office building and find a job as a quote unquote secretary, like she did when she was 18, 52 years ago. And they'll teach you how to type and how to answer phones and they'll pay for your transportation to and from work each day. And I'm like, um, it's not that simple anymore. Well, Stephen's parents, I'm certain that they meant well. But, you know, I'm only a few years older than Stephen would be if he were around today. And our parents were that generation, and we referred to them as boomers. They were a prosperous generation and still are. Stephen and I are both Gen Xers. And I feel like I relate a lot to the feelings of not being able to live up to my parents' expectations. Many of us who fall into that Generation X era may have experienced a lot of the same things. Making things even more challenging is the fact that Stephen had four other siblings to compare himself to. I don't have siblings, so that was never an issue for me. But in the Disappeared episode... Stephen's cousin had insinuated that pretty much everyone in the family was prospering except for Stephen. Either they were starting families, which we've talked about being a central part of the LDS church, or they were off into successful careers. Stephen just seemed to have trouble finding his own footing. His mom also said that living in the Salt Lake City area was difficult for Stephen because he disliked the cold winters which would end up leading to a move that Stephen decided to make from northern Utah to southern Utah. Now, I realize that the weather is going to generally be cooler for longer periods of time the further north we go in the United States, especially if the state is not next to either the Pacific or the Atlantic Oceans, which tends to temper the weather to an extent. But I looked at weather averages of the three cities where Stephen had lived, in Amarillo, Texas, Salt Lake City, Utah, and St. George, Utah. And you know, on average, those three geographical locations don't differ a whole lot in terms of climate. And since Stephen's mom said that he took issue with the weather, I decided to take a closer look at those specific winter months, December, January, and February. So in Amarillo in December, the average low is 24 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 4 degrees Celsius. In Salt Lake City, in December, the average low is 27 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 3 Celsius. And in St. George, the average low in December is 32 degrees Fahrenheit or 0 degrees Celsius. For the month of January in Amarillo, Texas, the average low is 23 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 5 degrees Celsius. In Salt Lake City, the average low in January is 27 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 3 degrees Celsius. And the average low in January in St. George is 33 degrees Fahrenheit or a half a degree celsius and for the month of february in amarillo the average low is 23 degrees fahrenheit or negative five degrees celsius in salt lake city in february the average low is 31 degrees fahrenheit or a negative half degree celsius and in saint george in february the average low is 37 degrees fahrenheit or 2.8 degrees celsius so yes on average it is a few degrees warmer in saint george but it's not like he's going to be wearing board shorts and flip flops in the winter either. So to me, the whole it's too cold in Salt Lake City was somewhat of a flimsy excuse to make the move. But that's what he told his mom and dad. Anyway, my whole point is, is that I don't think Stephen was being forthcoming with his parents. I feel like something was going on with him for maybe more than a couple years before he disappeared. He wasn't having an easy time with life, and he wasn't opening up much about it to his family. So back to Stephen's timeline. In 2007, he was working at the Salt Lake City Tribune with the digital advertising, but apparently his hours were overnight and he didn't like that. Coupled with the cold weather, after a year of working there, he told his parents he was going to quit and he was going to move about 300 miles or 482 kilometers south to the city of St. George, Utah. This move took place in April of 2009, and it is believed that the move was mostly prompted by his employment with another digital advertising company called Matchbin.com. But within months of his move to St. George in May of 2009, Stephen was actually told by the company that, quote, things were not working out and he was laid off. By this time, Stephen was 29. He would be turning 30 later on that year, on November 1st. The United States was in a full-blown recession by then, and that likely had something to do with Stephen suddenly finding himself out of work, along with, of course, being told that it wasn't working out, but that may have just been an excuse. And to make matters worse, like many Americans at the time, Stephen struggled to move forward and find stable employment. He was able to find work distributing flyers for a local window washing company called Travis's window and blind cleaning, but it was hardly enough money for Stephen to earn a living. Flyers for the company would subsequently be found inside Stephen's abandoned Chevy Cavalier. By the time November of 2009 rolled around, Stephen had fallen a couple months behind in his rent. He had connected with his local LDS ward and he networked as much as he could with as many connections as he could looking for work. So many of those who belonged to the same ward as Stephen knew that he was searching for stable employment. And a ward in the LDS church is simply a local congregation that is presided over by a bishop. Continuing on with Stephen's timeline leading up to him having gone missing... On October 6, 2009, and this was a Tuesday, Stephen attended the Shakespearean Festival in the city of Cedar City, Utah, which is about an hour north of his home in St. George. Who and how many of Stephen's immediate family were there as well, I don't exactly know, but I do know his grandma was there. And she was in the know about Stephen's financial conundrum and gave him a check to help him out. But it is a check that Stephen would never cash and he would continue to fall even further behind on his rent when it would come due at the beginning of November and then again in December. Now a little more than a month after the Shakespearean Festival Stephen drove to Northern Utah specifically to the city of Woods Cross which is outside of Salt Lake City in order to attend a wedding reception. While he was there, he had seen, spoken to, and visited with a number of friends and members of his family. The following day, in the nearby town of Bountiful, Utah, Stephen's family took the opportunity to celebrate his 30th birthday, which had passed two weeks earlier. His family threw him a party, and attendees consisted only of his immediate family at Ralph and Denise's house there in Bountiful. So it was about this time in the middle of November that the roommate Stephen had been sharing the rent with in the home that he lived in St. George suddenly moved out. His name was Jordan, and they were not acquainted prior to getting the house together. I believe it was a connection that he had made at the ward. There were two people looking for a place to rent together, a roommate situation to share the cost of living. But I can't say for sure. However, from the timing of it, it seemed as though Jordan who was also falling behind on his rent, took the opportunity to abandon the house while Stephen was in northern Utah for the wedding reception and birthday party. I don't know that to be a fact, but honestly, if both of these guys are several months past due on rent and suddenly an unemployed Stephen leaves town for a few days, I mean, why not just pack up and go and not have to deal with the hassle of explaining things to Stephen, especially since Jordan owed money? He could just as quickly and quietly move out while Stephen was gone and not to have any confrontations with him over money and leave Stephen on the hook for everything. Because remember, they aren't friends, so why would Jordan care, right? I don't know if this is how all this went down, but I could totally see something like this happening. And it most likely compounded the stress that Stephen was under at the time. Because not only was he on the hook for the months of rent that he was behind, he was now responsible for however much Jordan was behind, too. It was tough times for everyone, so I guess it was an every man for himself on that sinking ship kind of a thing. So Thanksgiving Day rolled around. That morning, Stephen participated in a game of volleyball with some friends in West Valley City. He got together with family for lunch and dinner that afternoon. Afterwards, Stephen went back to West Valley City for dessert. The following day, which was Friday, November 27th, 2009, Stephen went over to a friend's house to help decorate for Christmas. On Monday, November 30th, he spent the better part of the day and into the evening at his family's home, relaxing, hanging out, and also hanging Christmas decorations and lights. Following that, over the course of the next five days, Stephen was completely out of touch with all of his family and friends. Nobody was able to get a hold of him. Where he was or what he was doing is anybody's guess. But he did apparently make his way back down to his St. George apartment, but by this time, Stephen was a total of three months behind on rent. His grandmother had given him a check but for reasons known only to him, he didn't cash it, and he didn't use it to square things up with his landlord. Since the first of the month had passed and still no payment for rent had been made, Stephen's landlord went ahead and called and left a message about the unpaid rent with Stephen's parents. Sometime during the first week of December, and it's not exactly clear when, Stephen's dad returned the landlord's call, and it was then that Rolf learned that his son, was three months behind on the rent. Ralph called up Stephen to discuss his rent being delinquent, but Stephen reportedly became pretty upset about the conversation, and as I had mentioned earlier, he soon abruptly hung up on his dad, refusing to discuss the financial issues that he was facing. But it has been said, according to Stephen's landlord, that Stephen did contact him and said that he would be caught up with all of his rent by the beginning of January of 2010. Now, later on, when the family went back to look at Stephen's cell phone records, they started to think that this conversation between Rolf and Stephen may have actually occurred on the 9th of December as opposed to the first week of December as first reported. It was also mentioned that Stephen had told his dad that he was shopping for groceries at the time of that call and those groceries appeared to have been later found at his apartment and they apparently came from a Walmart. So if Stephen is in a crowded Walmart attempting to buy groceries, and here goes his dad with a phone call to nag at him about the rent. He's probably going to have no interest in getting into it while he was inside the store, eventually leading to the abrupt hang-up. And knowing that gave me somewhat of a new perspective on how that conversation between Ralph and Stephen about the rent really went down. I'd always been under the impression that Stephen simply didn't want to discuss it. He was 30 years old, He didn't want to be having this conversation with his dad but perhaps he told him hey look i'm at the walmart i don't want to talk about this now we can discuss this later and maybe rolf was giving stephen a hard time and was insisting that the conversation be had right then right there leaving stephen no choice but to hang up but either way i got the feeling that rolf was mad and stephen probably had no idea that his landlord was going to call his dad and tell him all his business And he was obviously hiding that business from Rolf. Rolf is upset. And Stephen is like, I can't talk about this right now. I'm at the store. But Rolf won't relent. He won't let up. He's likely angry and disappointed and embarrassed that his son has allowed something like this to happen. And it seems like we're kind of at the conclusion that Stephen is already Rolf and Deanna's one problem child. Do I know all this to be a fact? No, I don't. Again, it's just a vibe that I picked up based on the fact that Stephen hung up on his dad. And sadly, that would be the last time that Stephen and Rolf would ever speak. As I said, Stephen seemed to be off the grid for the first five days of December. But on the 5th, he reappeared, taking on the duties as a member of the road crew for a band called Rock Stocks. And just out of curiosity, I looked up the band, and I didn't really see anything notable. There are a few videos on YouTube of some cover songs, a little bit of a social media presence, and their music is on SoundCloud. We do know that Steven himself dabbled in music, singing, songwriting, and he could play guitar. I was unable to find the exact nature of his relationship with this band, So, I can only assume that perhaps he may have been friends with one or more of the members. But we do know to an extent that Stephen had an interest in music, and working as a roadie may have been a component of that. And according to those who worked with him that day, everything seemed pretty normal about him. No one noticed anything off, he didn't seem out of sorts, nothing was alarming. The following day, on Sunday, December 6, 2009, Stephen had set up an appointment with a fellow member of his church to do some home teaching four days later for the evening of December 13th at 7 p.m. What is meant by home teaching? I'm not clear about that. But to me, it kind of sounds like it's possibly a Bible study session. The day after that, on Monday, December 7th, Stephen showed up at an annual Christmas celebration dinner held at his church. He reportedly gave a few of his business cards to a friend of his so she could set them out at her job in case someone had a job lead. They'd be able to grab one of his cards and get in touch with him. Then the day after that, December 8th, the man Stephen was working with at the time, the owner of the window and blind company, Travis Hansen, he reported that he encountered Stephen in St. George, and he said that at the time he gave Stephen $100. However, Travis couldn't be sure if it was December 8th that he actually did that, or if it was earlier or a little bit later. He was just certain that it was right before he disappeared. Nor did Travis say whether he offered Stephen the money or if Stephen asked for it. But either way, based on what we know about Stephen and his resistance to even taking a handout, even from his own grandmother, it doesn't really sound like he'd ask, but you never know. On Wednesday, December 9th, one of Stephen's sisters reported that she spoke to him, but he made no mention of any plans to do any traveling. The last time anyone really remembered seeing Stephen in St. George was on that same day, the 9th, and at least one fellow church member believed that he saw him at the Ward Temple night that evening. A second church member also came forward and said that she said that she was there the same night, and it was around 630 that she saw Stephen at the Ward Temple night, On that night too. It was also apparently on the same evening that Stephen and his dad had that phone conversation that I mentioned earlier, that when they had a chance to look over the phone bills, that it was on that day, and this is the conversation that Stephen had hung up on his dad. It is believed that on the same night of Wednesday, December 9th, that Stephen began making an unexplained, lengthy drive his destination was Ruby Valley, Nevada from St. George. The distance, depending on which route Stephen took would be about 400 miles or 643 kilometers. And that would take him at least six hours to drive it. But because there are different routes and it seemed as though Stephen did take a little bit longer of a route, he's going to log more miles than the shortest distance that I found on maps between the two cities. Now based on where Stephen was living at the time, where he was headed, and his receipts and bank statements, his estimated departure was calculated to be possibly around 2.15 in the early morning hours of Thursday, December 10th. He arrived in Ruby Valley around 11 a.m. Bank records reflected stops that Stephen made along the way, and that would have included filling up for gas and getting food or snacks. Let's go over what we know about this trip. At 5.45 a.m. on December 10th, Steven stopped in Salt Lake City, where he made a purchase in the amount of $13.10 at a Maverick gas station and convenience store. This purchase posted to his bank account the following day. A friend of Stevens named Tom reported that he messaged Stephen on Facebook around 8.20 or 9.20 that morning of the 10th, depending on if we're talking about Pacific time or mountain time, but he received no response. Tom texted his phone about an hour later, and he still did not get any answer from Steven. At about 9:45 a.m., Steven made a $33.13 bank card purchase at a Pilot Travel Center in West Wendover, Nevada. Pilot stations are also gas stations and convenience stores in case you aren't familiar. This puts his total distance traveled at about 430 miles or almost 700 kilometers. Then Stephen arrived in Ruby Valley, Nevada, sometime between 11 a.m. and noon. And this would put his total distance traveled by then at around 540 miles or 870 kilometers. Now, apparently Stephen was there to visit with a young woman named Anne-Marie Neff. She lived in Ruby Valley on her family's ranch. They had met as members of the same ward in Salt Lake City a couple of years earlier. And the last time that Stephen had been to the family ranch was on April 26, 2008, for a cattle branding event. And I didn't even know that that was a spectator thing. Unfortunately, when Stephen arrived, Anne-Marie wasn't there, but her family asked him to stay for lunch, which Stephen accepted. He visited with her parents for a couple of hours, at which time he told them that he was planning on visiting some family and friends in Sacramento, California, but it did not appear that Stephen ever did make that drive that direction. He also may have mentioned to Anne-Marie's family that the weather was a little dicey to make that drive anyway, and later on it would be reported that the coachers had no family and friends in Sacramento at three forty five on December tenth, two thousand nine, Stephen received a call from his sister. He did not mention that he was on the road or that he was in Northern Nevada, and this would be the same sister that stated lately that they did not have any friends and family in or around the Sacramento area to speak of. About an hour after the call with his sister, Stephen stopped again in Salt Lake City and made a purchase of $7.30 at a Tesoro gas station and convenience store. This purchase ended up posting on his account on December 14th, which would lead to some misleading speculation early on in Stephen's disappearance because of this activity after the day that he disappeared. It would end up just turning out to be a delay in that transaction posting to his bank account. By this time, the total distance that Stephen had traveled was 785 miles, or 1,260 kilometers. A little less than an hour later, Stephen stopped at the Flying J Travel Plaza in Springville, Utah, which is also another gas station and convenience store. There, he spent $32.88. An hour and a half later, Stephen received a phone call from his mother, and she reported that during this conversation, Stephen told her that he was planning to come home for Christmas. Despite Stephen's financial and work woes, Deanne said that Stephen sounded positive and upbeat when she spoke to him on that day. She did talk to him about his financial situation, and she said that she would deposit some money into his bank account to assist him with the rent. She did make a deposit, but Stephen never touched the money. And this would be the last time that Deanne Cocher would ever speak to her son. So still on that same day, Thursday, December 10th, about a half hour after Stephen talked to his mom on the phone, he arrived in the city of Nephi, Utah. There, according to a cash receipt found in his car, he stopped at a taco time at 7.24 p.m. And now this is mountain time. And I'm trying to keep the time straight because the time zone straddles the Nevada, Utah border. But the difference is only an hour, so it doesn't really affect the timeline all that much. By the time Stephen makes it to Nephi, his total mileage has reached 870 miles or 1,400 kilometers. Finally, Stephen ended up back in St. George. It is estimated that he arrived shortly after 11 p.m. on December 10th. So with that, the total estimated distance that Stephen is said to have driven in the span of less than 24 hours is about 1,100 miles or 1,770 kilometers. But this estimate is based on him making no other extra stops, such as to rest or take a nap. But if Stephen did stop to sleep, which it is speculated that he did because later on there would be blankets and pillows found in his car, he may have arrived home later than this estimated time. There was no other confirmed sightings of Stephen until mid-afternoon of Friday, December 11th. So dreamers, I'm curious. What do you all make of this seemingly impromptu drive all the way from St. George in the southern part of Utah up to Ruby Valley, which is in the northern part of Nevada? It has been one of the more perplexing aspects of the story when it comes to the final known days and whereabouts of Stephen Kocher. Nobody really knew about the nearly nonstop marathon drive between those two cities. There has been lots of speculation as to what he was up to or what he may have been involved in, and what prompted him to make that drive, and some pretty wild speculation, that really on the surface doesn't exactly line up with what people generally know about Stephen. He seems to come off as a generally unassuming, average, unremarkable young man. However, there were a couple of things that stood out to me about the onset of the long drive. For one thing, it commenced just a short time after that tense phone call that he had, with his dad about him being behind on rent. The phone call during which Stephen hung up on him. Now this would be the first time that we know of that Stephen's parents were made aware of the fact that he was struggling financially and it was pretty bad. And I still think because Stephen abruptly hung up on his dad that the conversation was heated and that it was very upsetting to Stephen. And because he had been hiding his problems from his parents, And because this is the culmination of a few decisions that Stephen made that led him into the situation, and this included quitting working for the paper where his dad was the editor and moving kind of far away from his main support system, leaving northern Utah for a job in St. George, that pretty much let him go shortly after he got there. And then he got mixed up with a deadbeat roommate. But in the roommate's defense, Stephen wasn't exactly pulling his weight either. It's just the roommate ended up bailing out and leaving Stephen holding the bag. From the time Stephen lost his job, he struggled to find work, he struggled to make ends meet, and he was left with the burden of paying the full amount of the overdue rent. For his dad to be made aware that he was in some pretty serious financial dire straits, could that have been the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak? Because once Stephen hung up with his dad, that was it. Within a short period of time, he was on the road headed to northern Nevada with no known reason or purpose. And this drive seemed to have commenced at a very early hour of the morning, several hours before sunrise on December 10th. What does that tell us? That perhaps he was on some sort of time constraint? He was in a hurry for some reason? Did he maybe get a minimal amount of sleep or maybe he couldn't sleep at all? Maybe he just up and decided to take this drive just for himself to get away from his worries for a little bit, to get away from that apartment that he owed so much money on. Maybe he was embarrassed about his landlord calling his dad and really didn't feel like being around the place for a while. And what about Stephen's destination to visit an old girlfriend? What would prompt him to choose to go see her? I have no idea why they broke up. Maybe it was another thing Stephen struggled with. Maybe she was someone that he felt comfortable talking to or confiding in. Maybe she was able to help him in some way. Maybe she made him feel better. Or being around her was a positive, uplifting experience. He just really wanted to be there then there is possibly a darker reason for him wanting to see her. Maybe it was something he wanted to do just because he planned on never seeing her again. He didn't choose anyone else to visit in the last days before he disappeared, at least none that we know of. And people have come forward, and they've extensively shared the last time that they saw or talked to Stephen, and nobody had any idea that something was amiss with him. Nobody thought anything was troubling or concerning. To everyone, Stephen seemed his usual self. But then Stephen didn't actually get to visit with Anne-Marie. She wasn't there. After driving hundreds of miles only to find that he'd missed her. Could that have been utterly disappointing? Possibly. Depending on what it was he wanted or needed or was hoping for when he got there. Maybe Stephen was on the verge of going off the deep end. Maybe life had really worn him down. It had taken its toll on him, and he was just about ready to crumble under the weight of all the pressure that he was under. Maybe he thought going to see Anne Marie would be the thing that could pull him back. Maybe she brought him a sense of stability and security and safety that he'd been lacking and perhaps he wanted to attempt to get that back. She could have been a real driving force in Steven's life. Maybe she inspired and motivated him and he could have been searching for that energy to get him through this rough patch. That's a major component of intimate relationships. Our significant others become our strength when we're feeling weak. They pick us up when we're down there are cheerleaders when we need it the most. And to me, it is clear that Stephen could not turn to his family for the kind of support he may have been searching for. And that very well may have stemmed from shame or embarrassment. If his parents enjoyed successful careers and each of his four siblings was off doing the same or starting their own families, and yet there's Stephen. he just turned 30 not even close to getting married, even further away from starting a family of his own, and not even able to find steady work. And I bring up the age 30 again, as I've mentioned in the past about the LDS church. Specifically, I've talked about it in the case of Travis Alexander and Jody Arias in the past, how Travis had expressed a desire to settle down and get married because 30 was considered to be old to be single if you're Mormon. I don't know if all that still holds true, but it seems that it's a thing that regularly gets brought up when the LDS church comes up in cases. Getting married and having a family is a central theme. So Stephen turned 30 a little more than a month prior to this long drive that he made. It also is going to soon change the ward that Stephen would belong to. At least it would in the coming year. The young single adult ward's age limit is 30. Once he turns 31, he has to move on to the adult's single ward. I don't know how big of a deal that is to the members of the LDS church, but it places this limit on things that If you're not a member of the LDS Church, you don't necessarily have to abide by. Once you're 31, you're no longer in a ward with 19 to 30-year-olds. You're in a ward with 31 to 45-year-olds, and that's a totally different environment. Travis Alexander was headed there, and he was clearly not happy about it. Travis, of course, was not abiding by any of the limitations set in place by the Church, obviously with all of his sexual exploits involving Jodi Arias. So he was probably trying to get on the fast track to getting married before he was relegated to the adult singles ward. Along with all the other problems Stephen was having, maybe turning 30 compounded things. And maybe he realized he needed to get on the fast track to marriage too. Hence the visit to Anne-Marie. Maybe he wanted to rekindle their relationship or at least give it a try. And when he made that drive, which to some could be seen as kind of a romantic gesture, she wasn't there and maybe it was highly disappointing for him. We just don't know because Stephen kept all of this to himself. But a guy who has so little money, struggling financially, unable to make his rent or pay his bills it doesn't seem to be in the budget to go on an extended road trip like he did. I mean, all in all, he didn't spend a whole lot of money. It didn't appear that he did any non-essential spending. He got food and gas for the most part. And obviously, he didn't get a motel room or stay anywhere. Otherwise, he would not have been able to make that round trip at that distance in under 24 hours. So when a person is out of work with very few prospects to look forward to, And is as many as three months behind in rent. Taking an impromptu road trip doesn't really seem like the greatest idea. Unless that road trip had an important purpose. It's my personal opinion that it was to get away and clear his head. That sort of a jaunt with intentions of taking himself back to a place in his life before everything went sideways. Back when life was still good and happy. Back when he was close with ex-girlfriend, Anne-Marie. But as I said, there's been speculation and theories that this trip was something more than just a visit to an old flame, and I'll get into some of those theories a little bit later. But there is a notion out there that this trip may have had something to do with a job prospect or possibly to earn some money. However, as extensively as Stephen's disappearance has been investigated, there is nothing that anyone could find in terms of Stephen's last communications on his cell phone records, emails, social media, on his computer, there's nothing that points to anything or anyone that Stephen had a plan with. No one has said that they had a meeting with Stephen, no one has said that they spoke to him about a job, and no one has indicated that they knew anything about the road trip or any of the subsequent events to come. So the real reason for the long road trip on December 10th, the motivation for it, remains a mystery. Now we've arrived at Friday, December 11th, 2009. Stephen was back in St. George, and at around 3 that afternoon, he was out distributing flyers for the window washing and blind cleaning business. Where Stephen was from the time he arrived home from Ruby Valley about 12 to 15 hours earlier, nobody has been able to confirm, but the best guess is he probably slept for a good portion of that following that long drive. When investigators looked at Stephen's cell phone records for this time, an unknown number randomly appeared. When they called it, they found it to be a woman that Stephen had called because as he was passing out the flyers that afternoon, he encountered two children who had been inadvertently locked out of their house. And the concern that Stephen had was that the weather was cold. So he tried to help the kids look for their key, which they didn't find. So he used a cell phone to call their mom and then Stephen was able to help these children connect with a neighbor who was willing to take them in until their mother was able to come retrieve them. At some point also on December 11th, Stephen stopped at a Jack in the Box in the city of Washington, Utah, about a 10 minute drive from St. George. And there he spent $3.21. The time of that transaction is unclear. It was just posted to his bank account. Also on that day, Stephen's Bishop reported that he spoke to him on that Friday and that Stephen appeared to be fine. He was pretty upbeat and indicated that he was still on the job hunt. Stephen's Bishop could not be sure if they talked about it on that day, but he did report that he promised Stephen that he would help him find work come January, which to me sounds like a pretty good prospect and something Stephen could have possibly been looking forward to. He did have at least this one lead. He had people in his life that were wanting to help him, and with the promise from his bishop that he would have a job, that may have been Stephen's reasons for having told his landlord that he would be able to catch up on the rent by January as well. I do want us to remember that Stephen was given money by both his grandma and his mother to help pay for the rent. So, it bothers me a little bit that Stephen didn't take the money and pay on what he owed. But if I remember right, and I haven't watched Stephen's Disappeared episode in a long time, but his cousin who was interviewed for the show said that what that showed her was that Stephen was resistant to taking handouts. But to me, not paying his rent for three months, but also having the money and still not paying the landlord wasn't exactly the right thing to do. Family is family. And even if Stephen's pride was getting in the way, family are still meant to be the people we can turn to and lean on when times are rough. To me, continuing to stiff the landlord was not the fair or right thing to do because, you know, somebody's got to pay the bills and or the mortgage on the place. And in not paying, Stephen is placing his problems on the shoulders of the owner of his place of residence. The priority should have been to get even with his landlord, in my opinion, not to hold tight to his pride or whatever reasons he had for not using the money that his mom and grandma gave him. And then to take a road trip like he did in the midst of all these financial woes It does need to be said that Stephen may very well not have been in a good place mentally or emotionally, so he's not thinking about things like this. And he did promise the landlord that he'd catch up in January. And Stephen is pretty lucky that the landlord accepted that. I think it's a testament to Stephen and the fact that people did like him, and he was a good guy going through rough times, and people understood. Stephen probably had more of a support system than he realized. Sadly, for whatever reasons, he may not have been seeing it or realizing it clearly. And we're going to talk more about this landlord a little bit later on in the theory section of this episode. So getting back to our timeline. By the morning of Saturday, December 12th, 2009, Stephen gets back on the road again. At around 8.19 a.m., and we're in Pacific time now. Stephen's cell phone pinged at a tower located near the town of Overton, Nevada. This is a town that is off the 15 freeway headed south, about 80 miles or 128 kilometers southwest from his home in St. George. A portion of this drive clips the northwestern corner of Arizona, and the city of Overton itself is a short distance off the freeway. There is no indication that he got off the freeway or stopped there, just that his phone pinged. And then we come to a major gap in the timeline here in what seems to be about a 40-mile or 64-kilometer backtracking on Stephen's part because he ends up back in a northeasterly direction on the Arizona-Nevada border town of Mesquite. This is about 4 in the afternoon Pacific time. So that's a good lapse of about eight hours where we don't know where Stephen was going. We don't know where he was at or who, if anyone, he was with or visiting. Stephen's phone gave up no answers other than that ping in Overton. In Mesquite, Stephen stopped at a Shell gas station where he purchased food and about six gallons of gas, spending a total of $18.08. Then we have yet another mysterious amount of traveling back to St. George, which is about 45 minutes further northeast of his gas purchase in Mesquite. He stopped at a Kmart, and now he's back in the mountain time zone, but I'll keep talking about it in the Pacific time to keep it straight. At 6.58 p.m., Stephen purchased one bib for a baby girl and four Christmas ornaments. He spent a total of $9.42 and these items would later be found in his car. To Stephen's family, these purchases told them something important. They believed the bib was for his brother Matthew's baby daughter and that the Christmas ornaments were a sign that Stephen was planning to be alive and well at Christmas time. I personally don't know what to make of the purchases of these items, Or the second road trip. Because again, nothing in Stephen's phones, emails, or other communications gave up any answers as to what he was doing, who he was seeing, or why he was driving up and down the 15 freeway. Nor is there any explanation for the major gaps in time. The eight hours between the phone ping in Overton and the gas purchase in Mesquite, two towns about 45 minutes apart. What was going on with Stephen in those eight hours? There is also no explanation for the three hours between the gas purchase in Mesquite and the Kmart purchases back in St. George. That drive would have only taken about 45 minutes. So what happened to those lost three hours? Stephen was on the road, someplace, doing something for most of the daylight hours and into sunset, most of them with no explanation of what he was up to. Personally, I have no idea. It, again, could have been tracking down job leads, though I don't know how much luck he was expecting to have on a Saturday. Maybe he was passing out flyers for the window washing. And again, there are those theories that involve other nefarious or illegal activities that were said to be rooted in Stephen's financial problems. We'll talk more about that later. I'm not sure if I put too much stock into it, because I have a hard time seeing Stephen deciding to turn to doing something illegal for money when he really didn't have to. If he had help from his mom or his grandma, would he really put himself in a situation where he could get in a lot of trouble if he wasn't completely out of choices? It's possible, but to me it's not likely, but anything is possible in this case because we just don't know. I'll talk more about that angle later, though. Then at the end of this day, on Saturday the 12th, we encounter another mysterious gap in time. This one is about two hours and it falls between Stephen's purchases at Kmart and his arrival back at his home in St. George. A neighbor saw Stephen pulling into his home at about 9 p.m. Pacific time. That was two hours after he checked out at Kmart. Again, where he was and what he was doing during those two hours is also another mystery. And from there, the mystery only deepens more. Because that neighbor reported to have seen Stephen and his car parked at his home for no more than a half hour. By 9.30 p.m. on the evening of the 12th, Stephen had at some point gotten back into his car and drove away, as a neighbor has said that he glanced over by that time and no longer saw Stephen's car parked there. Now it is possible that Stephen came back in the middle of the night after that neighbor had gone to bed and left again early in the morning without being seen at all. And from there, there was no sign or word from Stephen until the following morning, Sunday, December thirteenth, two thousand nine. So on that morning of the thirteenth, Stephen received a call from the president of his ward, a man by the name of Greg Webb. He told Stephen that he was in Las Vegas and asked him if he could go to the 11 a.m. priesthood executive committee meeting at the ward. Stephen told him that coincidentally he was in the Vegas area too, but if he needed him to go, he would. Greg told Stephen to never mind. He was on his way back to St. George, so the chances are he'd get there before him anyway. The time the call took place was just before 9 a.m. Pacific time, so that would be just before 8 a.m. Mountain Time so they both would have gained an extra hour of time to make it to the church for that meeting anyway. And you kind of wish that Greg would have taken Stephen up on the offer to lead that meeting for him, huh? Maybe none of this would have happened, and we wouldn't be sitting here more than 10 years later, continuing to wonder. Later on in talking to Greg, Stephen's cousin Casey Nagal, She found out a little more about the Vegas trip from him. Greg said that he had driven down to Vegas on Friday, December 11th to visit with some friends. He was headed back to St. George on the 13th, but didn't think he was going to make it to church on time. So he called Stephen to see if he could cover for him, but he was told that Stephen was in Vegas too, so Greg said he would try and make it there himself. Next, Stephen was to preside over the 1 p.m. church services that day on the 13th back in St. George. So the church clerk, Seth Abood, called Stephen and asked him if he would be willing to announce their inaugural church baseball game, which was set to take place on Wednesday, December 16th. Of course, Stephen never made it to the 1 p.m. church services, and he also told Seth that he wouldn't be able to announce the baseball game because he was in Vegas. So essentially, this confirms to us that Stephen either didn't want to commit to announcing the game or he had plans to stay in the Vegas area for at least another three or four days. Now, later on, Seth did say that Stephen never played baseball. And I guess if you've never played, it would be challenging to call a game. The phone call that Stephen received from Seth pinged off of a tower towards the south end of the Las Vegas metropolitan area, which would be somewhat towards the adjacent city of Henderson, where Stephen would ultimately end up. At this point, we reach a discrepancy in the story. It's kind of a small one, but I'll bring it up anyway. So Greg had not shown up for the priesthood meeting that he was scheduled to lead. So apparently Seth was asked to call Stephen to see if he would be able to do it. And if this call was to have happened, it would have been the last time anyone was known to have spoken to Stephen. However, Seth had already spoken to him about 20 minutes earlier and was told he was in the Las Vegas area. It has been reported that during that call, Stephen again said that he couldn't make it in time because he was a couple hours away in Vegas. But according to phone records, this call never took place. It did not appear on Stephen's call log, so I don't think this call ever happened. Perhaps it was simply a case of someone misremembering how the whole interaction went down during the attempts to get this meeting covered. Greg arrived an hour late and was in attendance for the regular noon church meetings. He did not make it in time for the priesthood meeting. Okay, dreamers, I had not realized how long this episode was getting, so I'm going to go ahead and split it up into two parts. The second part will be out tomorrow, by Wednesday at the very latest, so you won't have to wait long to finish this up. I'm going to wrap this up here, I will pick it up from Stephen Kocher's last known moments that he was ever seen. Thank you for listening. I'll be back shortly with part two. And until then, sweet dreams.